Church in Sally, South Carolina. We pray God's richest blessings for you as you study His Word. All right, if you could find your place in the book of Matthew, chapter 10. going to continue on in our study verse by verse through the Gospel of Matthew. Again, I want to just say how thankful I am for Tommy Huddleston being here last Sunday and um, preaching a, a great word from Luke 9. So thankful for him and his ministry. And uh, it's a shame Lucy couldn't be here, but I know he explained to you what was, what was going on there. So uh, just continue to pray for them. Matthew chapter 10, two weeks ago, we talked about a disciple's game plan, how Jesus was sending out his disciples to be engaged in the mission, the mission of the kingdom. And so, mission comes with difficulty most times. And so, Jesus sends out his disciples to engage in this mission of the kingdom, but he wants them to have a clear perspective about what they're going to face as they go. In his uh, wonderful book, The Cost of Discipleship, Dietrich Bonhoeffer said these words very close to the beginning. He said, when God calls a man, he bids him come and die. Now that sounds harsh, but of course if you understand in the context of what he wrote and what he's getting at, what he's going to develop in that book, when we follow Jesus, it's very much like what uh, Pastor Tommy preached last Sunday from Luke 9. What does Luke 9.23, what does Jesus say? If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. It's a, a daily dying to ourselves. Not me today, God, it's you. It's not what I want, God, it's what you want. It's not where I want to go or, or what I want to be about. God, whatever your agenda for me is today, that's what I'm about. That's the essence of discipleship, the cost of discipleship. When God calls a man, he bids him come and die. Jesus sent out his twelve disciples into the mission of the kingdom. So here's the question. I'm going to state it now and we'll come back to it at the very end. Just how much trouble are we willing to put up with before we throw in the towel? If we know the mission is going to come with difficulty and challenges, it's not an easy pathway. If we know that going in, just how much trouble are we willing to deal with before we say, you know what, that's, that's, just, that's enough. That's just more than I'm willing to pay, more than I'm willing to handle. God, that's, I'm, I know I, I'm, I started out okay, but I just I can't do it anymore. Is, is there a point at which that is our perspective? Is there a point where we might arrive where we say, enough, I can't take any more. 
the Scripture today, I believe, will, will get at that question and help us maybe come to an answer for ourselves, something that we individually have to uh, decide. So I'm going to read beginning in verse 16 down to verse 25 of Matthew chapter 10. Here's what the Bible says. Words will be on the screen for you to follow along if you'd like to. Jesus is speaking. Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. But beware of men, for they will hand you over to the courts and scourge you in their synagogues. And you will even be brought before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. But when they hand you over... Do not worry about how or what you are to say, for it will be given you in that hour what you are to say. For it is not you who speak, but it is the Spirit of your Father who speaks in you. Brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child. And children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. You will be hated by all because of my name but it is the one who has endured to the end who will be saved but whenever they persecute you in one city flee to the next for truly I say to you you will not finish going through the cities of Israel until the Son of Man comes a disciple is not above his teacher nor a slave above his master it is enough for the disciple that he become like his teacher and the slave like his master. If they have called the head of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign the members of his household? Father, I pray in Jesus' name, please speak to our hearts. Please help us understand Your Word. Please help us be obedient to Your Word. Father, if, if You do nothing, then nothing will be done. We are completely dependent on You and Your Holy Spirit and the truth of Your Word. So God, help us today. Help us to hear and understand and obey for Your glory and our good. Now pray in Jesus' name. Amen. How would it feel if you were sent on a mission and immediately upon being given your marching orders, your commanding general says, Oh, and by the way, it's going to be horrible. You're going to have all kinds of difficulty, and who knows if you'll survive, but, you know, best of luck. You know, good, hope it goes well. Uh, not sure how it's going to turn out for you, but uh, I hope everything turns out okay. Doesn't exactly inspire confidence, right? It doesn't make you be encouraged about what you're about to do. But unfortunately, Jesus is less about um, strict encouragement and maybe more about uh, being realistic. 
I don't want you to be surprised. I don't want these things to come upon you in an unexpected way. So you need to know what you're getting into here. You need to know what's about to happen. He breaks this particular uh, set of verses down into a couple of different paragraphs, but there's kind of two overarching themes in these ten verses that I want us to see very clearly. The first one is this. Three things. Wisdom, integrity, and watchfulness. These are three things that you need to have when you're going out on mission. This past week was so timely to be away and serving and kind of uh, just out of our element in, in many ways and trying to help people we don't know and serve people we don't know and may not see again. And yet, at the same time, we're trying to approach our task as if, hey, we need to serve these people like we know them and love them and care about them like we've known them for years because that's what Jesus looks at them and sees. He sees people that need Christ. He sees people with compassion and He sees their condition and He knows just as He would say at the end of chapter 9, He looked out on the people and He had compassion on them because He saw their condition. They were cast down and discouraged and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. And so seeing their condition, it drove him to have compassion and that drove him to have a plan. Look at the harvest. There's people everywhere who need Jesus. When's the last time we honestly just took a look at our culture and society and had this attitude, not... Uh, look at everything that's wrong. Because that's where I go. I'm just to be honest. That's my first go-to. When I see things going on in the culture and in the world, it, it gives me a mixture of emotions. It, it saddens me and it upsets me. And it discourages me. When I look and see what's going on in the world, it doesn't make me happy. And so I have to think for a minute, if I'm going to have the mind of Christ, am I really going to see the world through my human eyes and just be mad? Look at all these... Let me put me on the interstate. Yesterday, I drove a bus for 13 hours from Miami back to here. I saw a lot of... I saw a lot of um, unfortunate driving habits. Let's say it that way. Trying to be kind. People in Florida don't know how to drive. And I don't know what it is, if it's in the water or what, but it's, it's tough down there. Well, I can look at things like that. I can look, heaven forbid, we watch the news, you see things that are going on in our world, and it upsets me. It saddens me. But at what point do I shift gears and put on different glasses and say, how would Jesus view this? How would Jesus view these people? How would Jesus go up to a a park in Sunrise, Florida where there's hundreds and hundreds of people that I've never seen before walking around, doing their thing, playing with their kids, exercising or whatever. And how would Jesus view these people? Would Jesus be doing the people watching thing and trying to pick out like different oddities and differences among the people? Oh, Man, look at that guy over there. What in the world's going on with him? You know, would that be what he's doing? Or would he be thinking like he did in Matthew nine thirty six when he looked out on the people 
He saw their condition. And they were discouraged. And they were cast down. They were like sheep without a shepherd. They needed help. And so He had compassion on them. Which drove Him to tell His disciples, Hey, y'all pay attention. You see the great need? You need to pray. There's not enough people to help. There's a great need. There's not enough workers. Pray to the Lord of the harvest that He would send out workers. And that's what Jesus did. So at what point do we see these things and do we switch gears, put on new glasses and say, how would Jesus see the need ahead of us? Jesus told His disciples to be wise. The first part of verse 16, how do we navigate... If we're the sheep and we're in the midst of wolves, how do we navigate that? You, you be wise. He says, be shrewd as serpents. Use every bit of wisdom and discernment that's provided by the Holy Spirit because Jesus has sent us out into an atmosphere that is not friendly. Not just people in general. In this context, specifically for His disciples, He's talking about religious leaders that oppose Jesus, oppose the kingdom of God coming as Jesus has pronounced. And so it's beyond just everyday people who are um, averse to the gospel. It's talking about the religious establishment. So how do they act? Well, you need to use wisdom and discernment. Be shrewd. But you also need to have integrity. Your character and your integrity has to be above reproach, beyond accusation. And so... While you're being wise, you also need to have good moral character so that you cannot be accused while you're sharing your message. You know, the last thing that you want is to have somebody be able to um, accuse you or poke holes in your behavior, your character, and thereby then discount your message. Right? But if, you're, if your character is above reproach and nobody can can accuse you of anything at all that anyone would ever believe, then it makes it much more difficult for them to say anything about your message. So when we preach the Gospel and we share the love of Christ, it's important. That's why Jesus says, speak the truth in love, because we're trying to be kind, not just share the truth. We have to speak the truth in love. We don't want... We're going to see this in just a second. But... The gospel is divisive enough on its own. We don't need to add insult to injury. We don't need to bring the gospel message in a way that's not winsome and kind and loving because the, gospel, the truth of the gospel itself is going to make people mad oftentimes. We don't need to add to that. Does that make sense? Our job as ambassadors is to be kind and loving even in the face of great opposition and even evil toward ourselves. So Jesus says, uh, use wisdom, use integrity. Be shrewd and yet be innocent. See, disciples are sheep indeed, but that doesn't mean they have to be stupid, right? We, we should at least be smart sheep, sheep who use our heads, as Leon Morris would say, sheep who don't overestimate the benevolence of wolves. 
Wolves aren't nice. They don't have your best interest in mind. So let's not assume the best about wolves and how they would treat us if given the opportunity. So we, we are sheep, but we don't need to be dumb like sheep tend to be. We should at least use our heads. But Jesus goes on in verse 17, after He tells them how to behave, He says, beware of men. So we need watchfulness. We need to pay attention to our surroundings. What I call, uh, I've been a chaplain for the police department for 12 years, and one thing that's taught to the officers is situational awareness. You have to pay attention to your surroundings. You don't want to get caught off guard. You don't want somebody sneaking up on you. You need to pay attention to what's around you, especially as you approach a vehicle or approach a situation. You don't want to get surprised, right? Be watchful. He says, beware of men. Why is that? What, what might men do? How might they treat you? Well, he says three things specifically. They're going to hand you over to the courts, by the way, just like Jesus. You see, you see how he's being prophetic here? They'll hand you over to the courts. They did that to Jesus. They will scourge you in their synagogues, just like Jesus. You will be brought before governors and kings. Pilate, Herod, just like Jesus. See, he, He's telling them what's going to happen to them because He knows what's going to happen to Him. He knows the plan and He knows what awaits Him at the end. So He's telling them, look, this is what these people are going to do, specifically the religious leaders. Don't think they have your best interests in mind because as soon as you start preaching the Gospel, everything's going to change. Their attitude toward you is going to change and it's not going to be pleasant. So beware of men, how they will treat you. But also, while you're being watchful, Verse 19, when they hand you over, don't worry about what you're going to say. Let, let me tell you why this is so important in this context. I mean, this is, if you've ever had a situation like this happen to you personally, then you know how true this is. When I, well, I don't know where that came from. I just started talking. All these this words just came to me. I just had the right thing to say. I don't know. I wasn't prepared. I don't know what happened. Well, that's called the Holy Spirit. That's called God being faithful to His promises yet again. But see, let me tell you why this is so important in this context. Who, by and large, who were the disciples? The twelve. Who, who were they made up of? Just regular old people, right? Fishermen. Got a tax collector over here. Hated. Right? They're not seminary graduates. Okay? You see what I'm saying? They weren't even necessarily high school graduates, just to compare to our culture, right? Do you know what the religious, the Sanhedrin, do you know what they said about Peter and John in Acts chapter 4? You recall? That's right. That's right, Carrie, they've been with Jesus. But how did they figure out, well, how are these men speaking all these truths, these, these lofty principles of Scripture? How do they know? Because here's what they called them. They are uneducated, untrained men. But they recognized they had been with Jesus. See, when you hang out with the author of the book, 
you get some insider information, right? So, so maybe what should we do? Maybe we should spend a little bit more time hanging out with the author of the book. Right? If we want to be prepared for the spiritual battles that we face every day, perhaps it would behoove us to, I need to spend some time in my Bible and I need to get along with Jesus because it doesn't matter what class I've been to or not been to, if I hang out with Jesus, He is going to help me. And I need it so bad. He, he tells them this, Hey, when this happens, it's going to happen. Don't worry about what you're going to say. Don't, and, and many of these men may have been actually not just untrained, uneducated, illiterate. Because you, know, you, you don't have to read a book to, to catch fish, right? And, and we know for sure that several of these disciples were fishermen by trade. So, so these men could have been worried. Well, if, okay, Jesus, if this is going to happen, if they're going to drag me into court... Drag me before a, a governor or a king as a testimony? What am I supposed to say? And he anticipates their fears. Don't worry about what you're going to say. Because it's not going to be you talking anyway. You see that? Look at the text. Do not worry about how or what you're to say, for it will be given you in that hour what you're to say, for it is not you who speak. Thank God. <laughs> Because I don't know what to say. It's not me who's speaking. It's the Spirit of your Father. You ever seen The Lion King? Anybody ever seen that movie? Back before Disney lost their mind. Um, Sorry, did I say that out loud? Uh, Alright, so there's a scene in The Lion King. This just came to me. If I'd have thought about it ahead of time, I'd have played the video. It's much more powerful. Alright, so you got Big Daddy Lion King, right? You got little baby uh, Simba, right? That's his name, Simba. Alright, so he and uh, he he and the other little friend, Nala, right? They like to go run around and play and go where they're not supposed to go because that's what kids do, right? They go where they're not supposed to go. Alright? Well, they've decided they're going to go off in this bad place where the hyenas hang out. Right? And so they get in this like a, a cave of bones or something, you know. It's, yeah, and it's, it's terrible looking. And they're playing around. And next thing you know, the hyenas show up and corner the little baby lion cubs, right? And they're freaking out. They don't know what to do. And uh, then the baby lion decides to let out a little roar, right? And, and he thinks he's all bad. And he and it sounds like about like my voice does. It sounds terrible. And the hyenas just start busting out laughing, like, do it again, do it again. That was hilarious. And but they're not scared. Right? But what none of them see is Daddy just rolled up and stepped in behind little son. And when he goes to to growl again, he opens his mouth and then behind him. His father, this big shadow, just lets out this massive roar. And the hyenas go, you know, the eyes get all big. And he just wipes the floor with them. And he he takes three hyenas in in one paw. He holds them up against the wall. 
if you can't see the spiritual nature of this, you're just missing it. He holds them up to the wall and he says, if you ever come near my son again. We have a heavenly Father who is all-powerful. Every other created being trembles in His presence. And He's, he's right there to help you anytime. Call on His name. And He's right there. When, when we open our mouths, it's our Father who roars. It's not us. It's not you who speak. It's the Spirit of your Father. You want to know something funny that happened to me this week? Last year, I told you all a story. I don't know if you remember it. I was in the park. We were having prayer with people. We were handing out our waters. We went to a different park this year, by the way. There's five or six of them in, this, in the town. Last year, I told you a story about a guy who walks down the path, all black clothing, black dark glasses, in each hand, a big, like a, not a dog leash, a chain, a for real chain, one in each hand, attached to, each chain is attached to a real big black and gold Rottweiler. And he's walking through, you know, it's like, it's like he's giving off this vibe like he don't want nobody talking to him. He want, everybody's going like to the, like the, the water's part, you know, when he walks. So nobody wants to be around him. He just looks bad. Bad news. So I walk up to him because, you know, that's just what I do. And uh, I said, man, those are some good-looking dogs. He said, thank you. I said, uh, you having a good day? And he cussed at me, said something mean. I said, oh man, that's too bad. Can I pray for you? He said, I'm an atheist, so no. I'm like, oh, alright. And as he walked off, I was like, well, you can't stop me from praying for you. So I prayed for him anyway. And he walked off. Guess who I saw this week in a different park? He comes strolling up, same guy, same black clothes, same dark glasses, same two dogs. And I, I about fell over. I said, God just sent the same man across my path. And I, I mean, I don't live there. I haven't been there in a year. And I was only there for a few days last year. And here he comes. And he passed by. And I, I went and told some of the other adults, I said, y'all just see that? You remember that guy? And um, so he comes, he goes down, and he's coming back. After about ten minutes, he's coming back. And so I step out in the path again. And I stand right in front of him, and he's coming up. And I can tell he's kind of like, okay, what's about to happen here? And I said, hey, remember me? <laughs> and he's like, no. And I said, well, that's all right. I said, but I talked to you in Volunteer Park a year ago about how much I liked your dogs and just wanted to see how you were doing. Are you having a good day today? He said, no. Yeah. All right. Okay. Can I pray for you? He's like, no. I said, I'm, all right. Walked off. I started praying for him again. But can, can you, 
can you just see the irony of how God expects us to do what He tells us to do and it doesn't matter what the circumstances are? Did you know, just side note, did you know that, that nobody can stop you from praying for them? I mean, what's he going to do? I mean, honestly, he's going to cover my mouth and I pray in my head. <laughs> you know, what, what, you, can't stop, you can't stop prayer. You can't stop the mission of God. When God calls you to something, you can't stop that from happening. You just have to know how to proceed according to what God tells you to do. And you don't have to worry about what's going to happen. You don't, do you need to be prepared? Absolutely. Did I prepare for this sermon? Absolutely. I studied. I prayed. I read the Scripture over and over and over. And I, I, I prayed that God would speak to me and then through me so that we would all learn from what He has to say. But honestly, I've got notes right here in this little thing. All right? And did you know only two-thirds of what I've said so far has been in my notes? You know why? Because every Sunday, without exception, God puts something in my mind that I didn't plan on saying that goes right with the Scripture. That's usually better than what I had written down. Yeah, not usually. It's always better than what I had written down. That's because God speaks if we'll just pay attention and listen. Wisdom, integrity, watchfulness. That's how God asks us to conduct ourselves when we're on mission for Him. And why is that? Last part. Last part. The offense of the Gospel. Verse 21 to 25, the offense of the Gospel is so profound, I don't know that we'll ever really fully understand how bad it is. But... Jesus gives us a clue when you look at what verse 21 begins to say. Look at what Jesus tells His disciples. Brother will betray brother to death. Not just a family argument. Over the principles of the gospel truth, brother will betray brother to death. That's how bad the gospel will offend. It will cause one brother to have his own brother put to death because of the truth of Christ. You think it's inconvenient when someone is rude to us or if some atheist guy in Florida says, no, you can't pray for me. Whatever. That's nothing. That's nothing. That's not even a blip on the radar. Jesus says the offense of the gospel will be so great that the division will become so grand that family members will put one another to death because of Jesus. Brother will betray, betray brother, father, his child. Children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. The kingdom message will be excruciatingly divisive, severing the most cherished human relationships. You want to know why so many people tell me, well, it's just so hard to, to talk about Jesus with my family. 
You want to know why? Read verse 21. That's why. Because the Gospel is an offense. The truth of Jesus is inconvenient because it demands a decision of some sort. It demands... You can't just hear about Jesus and say, oh, well, that's nice, and go on about your life. You've got to do something about it. And if you don't do anything, you just did something. Right? To not make a decision is to say no. You're either for me or against me. That's what Jesus is saying. You can't be in the middle. You can't straddle the fence. You're either for Christ or you are not. And, and so that type of conviction and devotion will cause even the most cherished relationships to be severed. In fact, Leon Morris said it's impossible to think of any more of a complete breakdown of the family, the basic unit of society than the division brought about by the gospel. Brother betrays brother to death. A father, his child, children, their parents, all over Jesus. We can't just agree to disagree. It's so much more profound than that. And he goes on in verse 22, you'll be hated by everybody because of my name. Everybody. You know who that, you know that, does that leave anybody out? The gospel is offensive because it is so painfully true and life-changing. So the gospel is offensive, but our ultimate loyalty has to it necessarily must be found in our relationship to Jesus. Because you know who's left after your mom or your dad or your son or your daughter or your brother or your sister or your uncle or aunt or whomever after they have shut the door on you and say, I don't want to talk to you ever again. Because of Jesus, after all that fallout, you know who's left faithful and true? Jesus. Because He will never leave. He will never forsake you. He will never allow you to be alone. You can be on the most remote island in the middle of the Pacific Ocean all by your lonesome. And guess what? If you're a Christian, you're not by yourself. Because Jesus is with us. Everyone will hate you because of your stand with Christ. You know what? James chapter 4, verse 4. Friendship with the world. Is hostility toward God. You want to make yourself a friend of the world, you've made yourself an enemy of God. That's how it works. But Jesus tells them, encourages them, press on. The one who's genuinely saved will endure to the end. The one who endures to the end will be saved. And it's not just saying that, well, if you do this, you're saved. Uh, that's not what He's saying. So just understand that one little spot. I want to make sure I bring some clarity to verse 22. The one who has endured to the end will be saved. Yes, that's because the one who is genuinely saved will endure to the end. Okay, does that make sense? This is not a works-based thing here, okay? But Jesus says, look, 
They're going to persecute you. So when they do, if they persecute you in this city, just go to that city. You, there's plenty of cities to go to, right? There's, there's plenty of people. What did he say in Matthew 9 and verse 37? The harvest is what? Plentiful. It's the workers are few. You've got plenty of work to do. Right? You'll never run out of lost folks. Ever. Right? So just keep going. You, you persecuted here, just go to the next one. You persecuted there, go to the next one. You'll never finish. He says this. He, he says this in verse 23. You won't finish the work in Israel before the Son of Man comes. You won't finish the work I've given you before Jesus returns. So how does all this end up and, and how are we supposed to react to all of this? Well, the final two verses kind of give us a, a, a clue. Jesus says, A disciple is not above his teacher, nor is a slave greater than his master, but they each should be like their teacher, their master. A disciple should become like his teacher, a slave like his master. So what does that mean for us? Verse 25. If Jesus is treated this way, if Jesus is called these names, you remember, and, and you, you can jot it down, or you can just look in your Bible, it's probably in the previous page, Matthew 9.34. You see what they said to Jesus in Matthew 9.34? He cast out a demon, and they said, oh, well, he's casting out demons by the power of demons. That doesn't make a bit of sense. A house divided against itself will not stand, right? So that doesn't make any sense. But here's what they did. They called him Beelzebub. They ascribed this name, this spirit to Jesus in Matthew 9.34. So when you get to Matthew 10.25, Jesus tells his followers, look, if they're calling me this, what do you think they're going to do to you? Because if, if Jesus is speaking, it's like this. He's saying, I'm God Almighty, and they're calling me the devil. I, cre I, I created them. They're calling me that. If they'll do that to me, I'm the head of the house. If they do that to me, what are they going to do to you? You see how that works? And you see why that's so important for us to know? So, so what do we do? How do we conclude? What, what's our application for all this truth? See, Jesus is saying that His enemies have treated Him in such a way so this uh, is going to have consequences for His followers. And so He makes that statement there at the end of the passage about what people have said about Him, how that affects us. So, so here's... Um, let me try to put it in, in, in human terms. When I was a kid... And if I was, you know, messing around or if somebody was talking to me in a, in a rude way, here's what I would do. And some of y'all may have done this. Like, if you get in trouble, like, if you, you and a bunch of kids and you get in trouble and maybe you get in a little argument that you might not, maybe you said something that you can't back up, right, something like that, then, then what do you do? I know none of y'all ever did that, right? None of y'all ever talked bigger than you were like, like, like I did. But let's just say that happened. And you felt like, oh, I might, I might need some help here. What, you know what I said? Well, I'll just go get my daddy. Right? I'll go get my daddy. He'll take care of it. And, then, and you know what they say? Well, your daddy ain't always going to be here. Okay? 
But, but what would have happened if I said that, if I pulled that card out and said, well, all right, you think you got something for me, but what about my daddy? He'll take care of it. And let's say I did that, and let's say my daddy showed up. And if, what if they mouthed off to him like they were to me or treated him like they did to me? Can you, can you imagine the feelings I would have at that, at that point? Because, see, I thought, Daddy's invincible. It doesn't matter what problem I have. If, if I call my Daddy, He's going to handle it. And if He shows up and all of a sudden they treat Him just as bad or, or maybe worse, what would I, I'm, I'm out of options. What would I do? Right? Jesus is saying, they have already treated me this way. They've called me these things. I'm the head of the house. So, just understand you're going to have some trouble. You're going to have some challenges. So, so here's what we do with that. This is the, this is the conclusion of the, of the matter. It's been my observation that uh, people often adapt this mindset, maybe this perspective, that the Christian life is just not supposed to be difficult for whatever reason. You know, people have gotten, I don't know where this idea has come from, maybe it's popular culture, but it's almost as if many people believe that their troubles should just magically go away whenever they come to Jesus in repentance and faith. Like everything's supposed to be good now. And there's usually a great deal of emotion that surrounds their conversion experience, and many times maybe it would appear that, that the great range of of feelings is actually genuine. But here's the thing. Time will always tell. Time is the great equalizer of emotional response. You see, somebody might be overcome with emotions at a particular point in time when they're in the heat of the moment, so to speak. But the true test is what their hearts and lives look like after a bit of time has passed, after the emotions of the moment are over, what your heart and life look like at that point is usually what's real. Whatever's left, after the emotion has died down, whatever's left is usually what's real. So the question before us today is this. How much of your relationship with Jesus is real? How much of it is left? After all the emotions of a moment die away, and all those things are past, how much is real? So that takes us back to the question at the beginning. How much trouble are we willing to put up with before we throw in the towel? Is there a point? You know, I, I, once, I once heard a conversation between my brother-in-law and another family member. And uh, she was saying to him, they were going back and forth about something, and she said, You're going to make me lose my religion. And you know what he said? Because my brother-in-law is a great preacher and a great man. 
he, he looked at her and said, you know what? If it's real, you can't lose it. If it's real, you can't lose it. How much of it is real, y'all? How, how much of it is true heart devotion surrender to Jesus? How much of it's real? Because if it's real, it doesn't matter what comes your way. If it's real, you can't lose it. Because Jesus has got you in His hand. And He will not let you go. How much of it is real? Two weeks ago, I put this quote on the screen, and I'm going to do it one more time, and then we're going to be finished. Michael Green wrote these words. Until our lives have been filled with the Spirit of God, we shall not be likely to engage enthusiastically in evangelism and mission because it is altogether too costly. Are we full of the Spirit of God? So is there a cost too great to be fully engaged in what Jesus has called us to do. I would submit that when you get full of Jesus, there is no cost too great. We go and do what He calls us to do for His glory. Thank you for listening to this message from God's Word. For more information on Berlin Baptist Church, we invite you to explore our website at www.berlinchurchsc.org.